invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. So over the last two weeks, we've studied uh, grumbling and complaining, or uh, not grumbling and complaining. Looking at God's sovereignty, last week we looked at why we have motivation and reason not to grumble, not to complain. Um, why it is necessary to be obedient to that command for our own sake, for our own assurance, to prove that we truly are who we claim to be. For others around us, for the non-believers who they grumble all the time, they don't know any different. And we would have hope to show to them in the midst of our trials, if we show forth God is sovereign, God is in control. And also for the sake of your leaders, your shepherds, your pastors, your mentors, as Paul says, I don't want to come to the end of my race and realize that I've run in vain. Over the last two weeks, God has tested us in silly ways. Um, we, the, the first Sunday that we started dealing with grumbling and complaining was Daylight Saving Sunday. So we did not grumble. We did not complain over the hour of sleep that we lost. And then the following Sunday, last week, we studied about grumbling and complaining when the AC was broken and it was 94 degrees outside, so we did not grumble, we did not complain. And then just to put one final exclamation point, we had an earthquake on Monday morning. So don't grumble, don't complain. A reminder from Numbers, remember when the earth opened up and swallowed those who grumbled, swallowed those who were disputing against God. Um, I, I personally would thoroughly enjoy a 4.4 earthquake rather than the earth swallowing up Swallowing me up, opening and swallowing me. So instead of sticking with grumbling and complaining, I say it is well time to move on. And I pray this morning, as I was studying through these verses and studying through the examples that we find, we are going to fly through a large chunk of Scripture. And the reason why I want to do that is not because there's not more there that we could study. We could take probably four weeks to go through the passages that we're going through, the verses we're going through. But here's my goal. I want you, by the end of this sermon, to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. There is a place for conviction. There is a place for challenge. There is a place for rebuking from the pulpit through the Word of God, because the Word of God would do that as we would preach it. And though there is challenge and encouragement and exhortation and even a little bit of rebuke in these verses, the majority of these verses deal with huge encouragement, high levels of encouragement. And I pray that you will be encouraged, even as I was encouraged studying these verses. To give us context, you remember chapter 2, Paul is dealing with the issue of unity and specifically the enemies of unity, namely selfish ambition and vain glory, empty conceit. Remember, that's the issue that he's attempting to try and encourage the Philippian church to change. They're struggling with disunity, with factions, arguing, not able to speak with certain people in the church. They show up at church, they see that person, they walk the other way. They say, oh, I hope I never have to talk to them. And Paul says the gospel does not allow us to do that. Jesus Christ was not slaughtered on a cross for you to say, mm, I don't like that person. I never want to see them. And so in chapter two, he says, no, we must fight for unity. We must fight for unity. Don't fight against each other. Fight with each other for unity. 
And he gives us four examples in chapter 2 of how to live this out. He starts with the best example. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Follow his example. You say, what does it look like, Paul, to be unified and specifically to fight against the enemies of unity, selfish ambition, uh, vainglory? You have this attitude in your mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. You empty yourself. You serve. You selflessly give of yourself, even until the point where it hurts, even to obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gives us Jesus as the first example. Then he gives himself as the second example in verse 17 of chapter 2. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. He says, look, I plead with you. I command you, do not grumble, do not dispute. And guess what? It's possible because I'm in chains. I might have my head cut off in a couple of weeks. I don't know what's going to happen to me. People are preaching out against me. There are factions. People hate me. And I am just filled with joy. It's possible. But Paul doesn't end there. He gives us two more examples in the people that we will see this morning. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Verses 19 through the end of chapter 2 in verse 30. We see the example of Timothy and the example of Epaphroditus. And in these two men... We will specifically see six qualities that make up a man that God can use or a woman that God can use. Principles within you inherent to your character that would be honorable, that God would say, this is what you want to have, what you need to have in order to serve me and in order to do so with selfless humility. Let's just read these verses for uh, context and a broad overview. Starting in verse 19, Paul writes, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, of Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all. And he was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick, even to the point of death, but God had mercy on him And not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life, to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Two men that Paul would lay before us this morning, Timothy and Epaphroditus, two men that give us such a beautiful picture of selfless servants, selfless humility to serve those around us. And I want to, I want to do, um, as I was reading through commentaries this week, they, you cannot imagine the differences uh, of the way that people splice these verses. 
Seven qualities about Timothy, three about Epaphroditus, two about Timothy, nine about Epaphroditus, 27 qualities found in both. It's just endless. And what I want to do this morning is I want to take both people, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and I want to see the the similarities, the commonalities between them, because I believe we're going to start with Timothy and then we'll move to Epaphroditus. But I believe that we will see that in the very heart of the matter, in their very character, they are identical though they are very different in many other ways. And I actually want to start there. I just want to give you a brief summary of Timothy and of Epaphroditus. So go ahead and write down Timothy, and let's get some info on Timothy. Timothy, he is a native of either Derby or Lystra, uh, two little towns that we know of as Galatia, within Galatia. What's his background like? His mother was a Jew by the name of Eunice. His grandmother, uh, her name was Lois. His father was a Greek, His father was a pagan. His father was not a believer. His father did not have Timothy circumcised. And so informally, under his mother and his grandmother, Timothy was educated in the scriptures. And the sowing of that seed by his mother and his grandmother was um, by Paul reaped in a harvest when Paul came to minister the gospel in Lystra in Acts chapter 14. Paul preached the gospel to Timothy, and Timothy was saved. Saved at a younger age, even though his father was not saved, and his mother and grandmother were saved. And then Timothy proves his worth right off the bat because he goes with Paul on his second missionary journey, which is about ten years before Paul will write the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. And when Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, Timothy is probably in his late 20s, early 30s. So Timothy, raised by a Jewish mother in the customs of Judaism, even though his father was a Greek, a pagan, a Gentile, did not love Jesus Christ. The seed was sown into Timothy's heart. Timothy believes the gospel when Paul comes. That's why Paul says he is my son in the faith. He's my child in the faith. And then he goes on a missionary journey, and ultimately he becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And we have much written about him in the scriptures, not only in Acts, not only in Philippians, not only in many other books. We also have two books that are named for him because he was the primary recipient of those letters, First and Second Timothy. He's a pastor, and he was saved at a young age. What about Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus is really the opposite. Epaphroditus, we do not know much about him. In fact, the only, the only two places that we read of his name are here in the book of Philippians. There's another man by the name of Epaphras that we read of elsewhere in Scripture, but that's not the same man, even though it's a nickname or a shortened form of Epaphroditus. We only read of him in Philippians, only twice in the book of Philippians, and that's it. We don't know who he is. Uh, We can guess who he is, though, based on his background, based on his name. He is probably Greek because his name means literally favored or loved of Aphrodite. You see Aphrodite in his name. Epaphroditus means loved of Aphrodite. He was probably raised in a Greek culture with a Greek mother, a Greek father, pagan uh, to the core. The only other thing that we can surmise from what we're going to find out is that he lived in Philippi. 
We don't know when he was converted, but more than likely he was probably converted later in life. And we don't see that he is a pastor by any means. He is simply a hard worker, a faithful man, that the Philippians, when they need to send somebody to Paul in Rome when he was in prison, they say Epaphroditus would be the perfect one. So we have Timothy raised in the Scriptures by his mother and grandmother, Epaphroditus not raised in the Scriptures. We have Timothy get saved more than likely at a young age through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, none other than the Apostle Paul himself. Epaphroditus probably got saved at an older age and probably not through the ministry directly of the Apostle Paul, although through the church that he planted in Philippi. Timothy goes on to become a pastor. Epaphroditus is a layman, just a hard worker involved in church ministry, but not at a pastoral shepherding role or level. And yet, though they are very different, I think the commonalities, the six qualities that we're going to look at this morning are identical between the two of them. And I hope to show you that this morning. So let's dive in. Verse 19, the six qualities that these two men share, we'll start with Timothy and then we'll see it paralleled in Epaphroditus as we move through. And they start in verse 19, Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, Philippian church, shortly, so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Paul says, I hope that's not I hope this happens, but I'm not sure if it will. That is, I have an eager expectation. I have a a goal. I have a plan that I think and I know with eager certainty will end up working out. But I hope in the Lord, according to the Lord's will, if the Lord wills, if he opens the door for me, I want to send Timothy to you shortly or quickly or soon. And I love this. He says, because I want to be encouraged when I learn of your condition. We could literally spend the whole rest of our time on that one section. Because what is Paul, what does he know the condition of the Philippian church is right now? He knows that they're fighting, that they're disputing, that they're grumbling, that they're kicking against each other, that they're stiff-arming each other and saying, we aren't going to fellowship. And yet he says, oh, when I send Timothy to you, I know that I will be encouraged because I know that you will be changed. You will be obedient. You will be following the Lord. This is pastoral optimism. Uh, Paul is following through with the words that he himself wrote, right? Love believes all things, hopes all things. He doesn't say, I'm hoping to send Timothy so he'll check up on you because I'm sure you're doing it wrong. He says, I want to send Timothy to hear a good report because I'm sure you're doing it right. Um, Side note, for our counseling ministry, whenever you have to go to somebody in a Matthew 18 format to confront them in sin, do so with optimism. Don't go to them saying, hey, I know you're in sin, and I know you're stuck in sin, and I know you don't even want to hear what I'm about to say, and I know you're probably going to kick against it and rebel against me and God, and we're probably going to have to kick you out of the church. But listen to me anyway. Be like Paul. He says, I'm sure that I probably have heard confusing things. I want to hear the truth because I'm sure that you're walking in righteousness and I want to validate that. Paul says, I want to hear of your condition and I want to be encouraged when I hear because I know you'll be walking in truth. I love that about Paul. And then he starts in verse 20. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. If you want to be a man or a woman that God can use, I, I think, man, who is the kind of person that Paul would have said, I want him to join me on my missionary journey? 
I want to be that man. I want to be a man that Paul would say, he will be faithful. He will be fruitful. He will be efficient and effective. I want him. And ultimately, through the Holy Spirit, this is the man that God wants. This is the man that God wants to use, that God can use, that God will use. How can we be that? What qualities must we have in order to become like Timothy and like Epaphroditus? Number one, in verse 20, we must be like-minded in Christ. We must be like-minded in Christ. Paul says in verse 20, I have no one else other than Timothy who is of kindred spirit. My Bible says kindred spirit. Uh, The Greek is literally equal souled. The way that Timothy thinks is the way I think. The way I think is the way Timothy thinks. I can send him anywhere and he will respond as if I were there because we are so equally sold. We are so like-minded. You see this elsewhere in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. We don't have time to turn there because we're going to be flying through this message, but you can write it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writes, Therefore, I exhort you, church, be imitators of me. Imitate me. And because of this, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy is the spitting image of Paul. How did he get that way? How did Timothy become so like-minded with Paul? That's why I put like-minded in Christ, because he is a scripture-saturated person. He has poured over the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul, which are the teachings of Jesus. And he's become so familiar with those teachings that when he is in a situation where he needs to respond, he responds the way Paul would, who is responding the way that Jesus would. This is ultimately the goal of spiritual discipleship. That those who you are discipling follow you as you follow Christ. You want them to imitate you. So here's a question. If you are discipling someone... What areas of your life would you be ashamed to see them emulating? To see them living out the exact same thing you live out? What a perfect accountability discipleship brings. Be like me in every single regard except for this one. I'm still struggling here. But be like me in everything else. Those areas that we struggle with are the areas we need to change right now. Paul says, you can imitate me because I imitate Christ. And you can imitate Timothy. Because Timothy imitates me. And I imitate Christ. Like-minded in Christ. Paul says that there is no one else. That doesn't mean that there is literally on the planet no one else that is equally sold. What it does mean is that in Rome at that time there is no one else who can do the same ministry that Timothy is doing. And therefore we know principally this kind of man is very hard to find. This kind of man is very hard to find. Why? Why is he hard to find? The second character quality that we find in Timothy is one of the reasons why this kind of man is hard to find. Not only is he like-minded in Christ with Paul over the scriptures, scripture saturated, but number two, Timothy genuinely has concern for people. He has a genuine concern for people. Again, in verse 20, Paul says, I don't have anyone else like him who's equal in soul who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. I love these words, genuinely concerned, concerned. Uh, That verse shows up actually in Philippians, or that word shows up in Philippians chapter 4. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. 
verse 6, you'll find the exact same word, the exact same Greek word for concerned in chapter 2. You'll find it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That word anxious is the same Greek word for concerned that we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20. So we say, okay, Paul, you say, do not be anxious, do not be concerned for anything. So isn't Timothy disobeying that command? No, because there is a positive and a negative way to be anxious or concerned. Used positively, uh, there are a couple other locations in the New Testament where concerned or anxious is used positively. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 24 through 25, dealing with a deep concern for people, reads this. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. That's the the word, concern. They may be anxious together for one another to meet one another's needs. We also find this word in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, where Paul says he has the daily pressure of the daily concern of all the churches that weighs heavily upon his soul. So there is bad anxiety, there's bad concern, and there is positive good concern. And it's genuine concern. It's the kind of concern that Paul has for the churches. It's the kind of concern that Timothy has for the Philippian church. He is genuinely concerned for their welfare in verse 20. I also love the word genuinely. Uh, Genuine, it's it's a word that in the Greek originally meant legitimate child, a legitimate child. He will legitimately be concerned for you. It's not hypocritical concern. It's not a facade of, oh, I love you, but once you're gone, man, that person is just a black hole of neediness. Why do they always need something from me? It's genuine concern. And D.A. Carson says, well, be on the alert for the Christians who really do exemplify this basic Christian attitude, this habit of helpfulness. They are never the sort who strut their way into leadership. I deserve to be a leader. Nope. They never strut their way into leadership with inflated estimates of their own importance. They're the kind who cheerfully pick up after other people. They are not offended if no one asks about them. They are too busy asking about others. Timothy has a genuine concern for the Philippian church. What does this look like? Practically, you can write down 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. This looks like practically what Paul says about himself and about the other ministers to the church in Thessalonica. He says, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Gently, tenderly, compassionately caring. This passage teaches that true servants always have a tenderness and compassion for other people. True shepherds, true leaders always care for people with a genuine concern. If you like to teach, if you like to preach, if you like to shepherd, but you do not have a genuine care for other people, do not become a pastor. Stay a teacher. Stay in the academic world where you can clock out and nobody will call you and say, excuse me, I need you to come over because I'm dealing with a struggle in my marriage and I want to get a divorce right now. And you can't, on the other side of the phone, say, 
you know what? I'm sick of these people with their struggles. Just deal with it. No. Shepherds care when the sheep are hurt. Whether it's a broken leg, whether it's a little thorn in their foot, they care deeply. Timothy is like-minded in Christ. Timothy is genuinely concerned for people. He loves people. A third quality that we see in Timothy, and we will see it in Epaphroditus, is he is selflessly devoted to Christ. Timothy is selflessly devoted to Christ. Paul goes on in verse 21 to say, For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. They seek after their own interests, which is the breeding ground for disunity. Remember, in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, Don't seek after your own interests. Seek out the interests of others. Look out for the interests of others. And he says, Timothy is the only one that's doing that. They all around me are seeking out for their own interests. But there is something that needs to be said about this verse. It's not that they're seeking after sinful interests. Literally, the verse is, for all are seeking their own things. They are seeking their own things. So it's not necessarily that they're seeking sinful things, just their own pursuits. When Paul is thinking, I need to send somebody back to the church in Philippi with a letter, letting them know how I am doing. He looks around and he sees that person won't be able to do it because they are stuck in their business. And that person won't be able to do it because they are stuck with their family. And that person will be able to do it because, 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 because they're pursuing, not necessarily sinful things, but they're pursuing things other than what the Lord would have them do. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, says, They are so warm in pursuing their own interests that they were cold in the work of the Lord. But Timothy has his sight set on one thing, a single-minded, selfless devotion to Christ. He wants to know Jesus, and he wants to make him known. So he says, sure, I'll drop whatever I have. This takes priority. This takes preeminence. I'll drop whatever I have. And that's exactly like Paul, right? Of course it would be, because Timothy is like-minded in Christ, just as Paul is. And Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him, him crucified. That's all I want to know myself, and that's all I want you to know. So Timothy is like-minded in Christ. He has a genuine concern for people. He is selflessly devoted to Christ. Fourthly, and I told you we're flying, but fourthly, he has proven faithfulness. He has proven faithfulness. Verse 22, but you know of his proven worth. So they all are seeking after their own interest, but you know that he doesn't do that. He has proven worth, literally in the Greek, proven character. His character has been tested time and time again, and he has come out of the testing no longer a rookie, a veteran in ministry, with proven character, with proven worth. He's dependable. He's faithful. This verse asks uh, our own souls, how faithful are you? How dependable are you? There's a task that needs to be done. Are you the first person that people think of to do that task? You say, maybe I'm not really the best when it comes to faithfulness or dependence. Um, my encouragement to you would be what Jesus says. Be faithful in the little. Start in the little. And if you're faithful in the little, you will be faithful in the much. Timothy was faithful in the little. He passed the test. He was proven. And please note, he was not proven by school. He was not proven in the academic world. He was proven by service. 
That should be a hope. You don't have to go to seminary to prove your worth and your faithfulness. You're proven by your testing, how you respond to it, and how you trust in the Savior. Timothy was like-minded in Christ. He had a genuine concern for people. He was selflessly devoted to Christ. He had proven faithfulness. He had a good track record that stood against every other trial and testing. Number five, he had evangelistic passion. He had evangelistic passion. I love what Paul says here. You know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. He served with me. Literally, the word there is doulos. He slaved with me. Notice Paul doesn't say he slaved for me. I told him what to do and he did it. It's we're slaves together, equal at the foot of the cross. Nobody is above anybody else. We are equal and we're slaves before the Lord. And he's slaved with me for the furtherance of the gospel. His goal, his ultimate goal is the furtherance of the gospel. That's why he goes on missionary journeys. That's why he studies under Paul and then goes wherever he can go to share the gospel with people, whether they've heard of Jesus or whether they have not yet heard of him. The gospel must go forth. And it doesn't matter what it costs. Come what may. Shipwrecks like Paul had. Imprisonments like Paul had. Ultimately, death doesn't matter. The furtherance of the gospel with evangelistic passion is what matters. And lastly, the last, the sixth quality that we see in Timothy is he is humble in spirit. Not only like-minded in Christ, not only genuinely concerned for people, not only selflessly devoted to Christ, not only proven in his faithfulness and evangelistic passion, but he is humble in his spirit. He is humble in spirit. The end of verse 22, he is like a child serving his father. He is teachable. He is submissive. He is kind. He is gentle. He is caring. Tell me what to do, Daddy, and I'll do it. I'll obey. I'll do what you ask me to do. I won't question it. I don't know better. I don't know more than you do. In humility, he says, yes, I'll do it. I love the way that Paul brings in the image of a family. He is my son in the Lord because Paul was the one who brought him to saving faith through the message of the gospel that he proclaimed. But he says he's just a son, but our father is the same father. And that father is the one that we serve. He is our master. We are his slaves. Therefore, before him, we need to live the way the father would have us to live. Serving in the body of Christ, serving in the family of Christ. Paul says, therefore, I want to send him. Of course you want to send him. Look at all the qualities that he has. Verse 23, I hope to send him immediately. First, it was shortly in verse 19. And after Paul gets through this list, he goes, no, no, he's got to go now. This guy's amazing. I want to send him now. As soon as I see how things go with me, whether or not I'm going to stay, whether or not I'm going to be released, whatever's going to happen to me in prison. But I trust, verse 24, that in the Lord I myself will be coming uh, to you shortly. I think I'm going to be getting out. And then I will send him as shortly and immediately as I possibly can. That's Timothy. Now, these same qualities, though Epaphroditus is totally different in background, I believe that these same qualities we'll see in these next verses of Epaphroditus only flip them upside down, okay? So starting with six, that'll be number one, five will be two, and so on and so forth. We'll go backwards. And I will admit there are a couple places where we'll have to stretch it a little bit. Um, I don't think that Paul is trying to make some sort of chiastic structure here. 
But for the sake of time and for the sake of being encouraged by one message of two selfless servants, I want you to see that they have commonality and identical character qualities before the Lord. So Paul says, verse 25, I'm sending Timothy, but right now I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Again, there is so much in there, we could take one entire message to look through. But quickly, remember how Timothy had the character quality of being humble in spirit. When Paul called him a child serving, a child taking care of, a family of Christ, Paul begins there with Epaphroditus. He is in the family of Christ. He is a brother. He is also humble in spirit. He's my brother. We all have the same father. None of us are greater than the other. We're brothers in ministry. We're partners in ministry. And Epaphroditus knows that. And Paul says he has also been adopted into the family of God, under the fatherhood of God. We all share the same family name. That's why 1 John, turn just really quickly to 1 John chapter 3. I want you to see this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. You say, how do we know? How do we know if we're in the family of Jesus Christ? How do we know that? John writes, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He said, I want to know if I am in the family of God. What is your love like for brothers and sisters around you? What is your love like? Do you humbly serve and care for just the same way that Timothy was humble in his spirit, same way Epaphroditus is humble in his spirit? Do you humbly serve those around you? Paul says Epaphroditus is my brother. He is humble in his spirit. He is a part of the family of God. Secondly, again, the fifth quality that we saw in Timothy, we see here, secondly, in Epaphroditus. He has evangelistic passion. He has a goal. He has a determined, disciplined understanding that there is work that must be done. And that's why Paul says he is a fellow worker and he is a fellow soldier. He's a fellow worker. That that phrase, fellow worker, is Paul's favorite expression for people who are working alongside him in ministry for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul calls Timothy his fellow worker and a whole host of others, Luke, Aquila, Priscilla, Titus, Aristarchus, and Epaphroditus. They're all fellow workers in furthering the gospel in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Not only is he a fellow worker, but he's also a fellow soldier. You know Paul loves the imagery of war. Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, no good soldier entangles him in the earthly affairs of the world. But they serve and they please and they live for the one who enlisted them in service. So too, Epaphroditus has one goal as a fellow worker, as a fellow soldier, as one determination is that the world would know of Jesus Christ. He has evangelistic passion. Not only does Epaphroditus have a a humble spirit, not only is he evangelistically passionate, but thirdly, and again, the fourth character quality that we saw in Timothy he has proven faithfulness. He is proven in his character. He has proven faithfulness. And we see this in Paul's words 
who is also your messenger. So he is my brother, he is my fellow worker, he is my fellow soldier, and he is also your messenger. He was the messenger, he's the Philippian messenger. The church in Philippi wanted Paul to know how they were doing. They wanted to hear um, of how Paul is doing. And so they decided, let's send somebody to Rome and make sure we know how Paul's doing, how we can support him, how we can care for him. Let's make sure we know how to do this. So again, as they look, they look out in their church and they say, we need to know uh, who we can send, who will get us the answers we need, who will go do the mission that we have them to do, regardless of what the trials might come. And I love it. They, they choose Epaphroditus. They don't just go, well, we'll give him a shot. They don't say, well, this will be the first time he's done anything for us, so let's send him on a six-week journey and hope it all turns out well. They say, who is the most proven in his faithfulness who will get the job done? No questions asked. Oh, obviously it's Epaphroditus. Send him. He's proven in his faithfulness or else they wouldn't have sent him. Again, the question here to our own souls is, are we seen as trustworthy, as dependable? Would you have been chosen for the job that Epaphroditus was chosen for? Or would people pass over you? Again, start by being faithful in the little and then you'll be faithful in the much. Start by putting yourself in the way of truth. Be a part of Bible studies. Be a part of the family Bible hour. Be a part of the home Bible studies. Be a part of the groups that we gather together to put ourselves in the way of truth. Get run over by truth every time so that we will grow in like-mindedness in Christ. So Paul says, yeah, he was your messenger. He was sent by you because he is proven in his faithfulness. But not only that, I love this. He's selfless in his devotion to Christ. Epaphroditus is humble in spirit, has evangelistic passion, is proven in his faithfulness, just like Timothy, but he's also selflessly devoted to Jesus Christ. This is third for both Timothy and Epaphroditus. If you're following along as they're flipped, this is number three for both. And I love the way that Paul brings this out. He says that Epaphroditus is your messenger. Church in Philippi, you sent him, but he's also your minister. Uh, That word there is the word that we get our word liturgy from. He is a a liturgical aspect. He is a liturgical element. We could translate, he is your priest that you sent to my need. The Philippians, in a sense, in this metaphor, are priests making a sacrifice to God. And that sacrifice specifically is given by Epaphroditus to Paul in Rome, along with financial support. You can see, turn to chapter 4. If you turn to chapter 4, verse 18, you read, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance, and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, that sacrifice of praise, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The Philippian church sent Epaphroditus with two things, namely, number one, financial care and support. Financial care and support. Jails back then aren't like jails today. Um, Paul did not have a big screen TV and everything he could possibly want in jail with uh, all of his food and all of his uh, things that he needed being provided for. Back then it was, if you want to live and survive in jail, your family's got to take care of you. And if they don't, tough luck, you're going to die. So, since Paul is unable to take care of himself, he's no longer able to make tents, to be a tent maker, to 
provide for his own food, his own needs, the church in Philippi says, we will send Epaphroditus with money, with financial gifts, so that he will be taken care of. But that's only the first gift, and that's by far the smaller of the two gifts. The church in Philippi also says, we want to send Epaphroditus himself as the gift. That's the reason why Paul is writing these verses. He's explaining to the church in Philippi why he is sending Epaphroditus back. Epaphroditus was sent by the Philippian church to Rome to stay with Paul, not to go back. Not to give it a report and come back, but to stay there. And so Paul has to write, here's why I'm sending him back. Not because he was a failure, not because he's not my best friend or a guy that I want to hang out with, but because he was sick. And as we get into the next verses, he was distressed because of his sickness. And because of what you had heard. So I want him to go back to you so that you can see him healed, complete. But here he is with selfless devotion to Christ. I will do whatever it takes to be a minister to the need of the apostle of Jesus Christ. To be a minister of the need to the church. That's all I care about. So send me. I have to give up whatever I have to give up. I have to put aside my job. Uh, say goodbye to my family. It doesn't matter. I will minister for the Lord as unto the Lord, selflessly devoted to Jesus. So call upon me. He's a brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He's a messenger and a minister to Paul's need. Fourthly, we see that he was genuinely concerned for the people, just like Timothy was. Verse 26, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So Epaphroditus was sent by the church in Philippi to Rome. He showed up in Rome and he had been sick. It takes about six weeks to travel in that time uh, from Philippi to Rome. So it takes about six weeks. Epaphroditus travels the six weeks, but he is distressed. My Bible says distressed. He's longing for the Philippian church and he is distressed. And this is just crazy because you had heard that he was sick. Um, For indeed, verse 27, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. What's going on here? Um, Epaphroditus gets sick and we see that he gets sick to the point of death. He should have died, but he doesn't. God has mercy on him. But Epaphroditus is distressed and he's not distressed because he's sick. He's distressed because the Philippian church is distressed because he is sick. Um, if you've ever gotten a call that somebody's in the hospital, that 5 to 15 to 25 minutes that you're driving to see them in the hospital, those are some of the worst minutes of your life. What's happened to them? Are they okay? Are they going to be okay? What's the prognosis? What's going on? You are distressed. And it's as if Epaphroditus is lying on that hospital bed, distressed, knowing that you're probably distressed over him being in the ER. He has a genuine care and concern for the people that he ministers to. So much so that even in his darkest hour, when he is at the point of death, he still isn't thinking about himself. This is so like Jesus. You remember Jesus dying on the cross. In a moment that, if I'm thinking, there's a, there's a moment of time in my life when I can think about nobody but me. It's probably when I'm being murdered on a cross. Let me just hang on to the last fleeting seconds of my life and I don't have to worry about anybody else. But Jesus says, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. I want to take care of you. I'm still selflessly serving while I'm being slaughtered on a cross. 
And since Epaphroditus is like-minded in Jesus Christ, he thinks the same way. I'm about to die, but I don't care about myself. I care about those that I know are going to be struggling with the fact that they have heard that I'm, I'm dying. That word distressed, it's only used two other places in the New Testament of Jesus Christ when he was distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is deep sorrow, deep pain, deep turmoil. And Epaphroditus felt that only because he deeply cared for the church in Philippi. He deeply cared. So, Epaphroditus, as does Timothy, is humble in spirit, evangelistic with his passion, proven in his faithfulness, selflessly devoted to Jesus Christ, concerned for the people that he's ministering to, and lastly, he is like-minded in Jesus Christ. Verse 28 says, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that you, when you see him again, may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. The end of verse 29 says, Hold men like Epaphroditus and like Timothy in high regard. Why? My Bible smushes because he came close to death right after that. So it looks like we should only hold people that have come close to death in high regard. Um, That's not what the verse is saying. Literally, it's hold men like him in high regard because he risked his life for the work of Jesus, completing what was deficient in your service to me, coming close to death. So why should we hold him in high regard? Because he risked his life for the work of Christ. That word there is risking. The only time we see it in the New Testament. The only time. So we have to find out what it means based on extra-biblical Greek. And when we go to extra-biblical Greek, we read that this word is used uh, to speak of gambling. He gambled his life. I could potentially die in the ministry and service to Paul, but it's okay. I'm fine to gamble my life. How was Epaphroditus risking his life? Well, he was traveling. He could have been beat up. He could have been lost. He could have been killed. He's also attaching himself to an enemy of the state. He's showing up, going to Paul in prison and saying, he's my best bud. I want to hang out with him. And I align with him in every respect. So if he's in jail for something, I should probably be put in jail for that thing too. Ultimately, he risks his life. But it's good that he risks his life. We as happy Americans just don't like risk, right? I think that's one of the reasons why people get saved, quote-unquote. Hell is a really bad risk to take, so here's some fire insurance because I don't want to be thrown into hell. I don't like that risk, so let me do whatever I have to do to not go there. And then from that point forward, people just go, I don't just don't want put me in messy situations. I've heard of parents uh, when their children want to go to third world countries to be missionaries to share the gospel. They say, no, don't do that. We want you here. We want to see our grandkids. Uh, We don't want you to get hurt. People die. Just stay here. Risk is right. The reason why we hold Epaphroditus in high honors is because he risked. He, he was like-minded in Christ with the Apostle Paul because he said to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I risk losing my life and I lose my life, I win. 
I win. One of the um, principles out of these two men, or really just in studying them, is that we need to dive into Christian biography. Can I just plead with you? You should always be having one book, one book on a Christian biography of some believer down to the ages. Just one on your nightstand. Read a chapter a day, read a chapter a week, but you should always have a Christian biography rotating through your reading. Why? Because they set the standards so high and were encouraged by their response to gospel ministry and to what surrounds them. Here's one such example of risk in Christian biography. A Romanian pastor named Josef Tson uh, in 2009 in an autobiographical article in uh, To Every Tribe magazine recounts being interrogated by six men for the gospel. Listen to this. This is the definition of biblical spiritual gutsiness. Okay? Listen to this. He said to one of his interrogators who is holding, one's holding a baton, one's holding a gun, and one's holding a stick with which to beat him. He says this. Listen, what's taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson. I don't know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sir, that you will do to me only what he wants you to do. And you will not go one inch further because you are simply an instrument of my God. And then he adds, I saw those six pompous men as my father's puppets. Sound like somebody else we know? Jesus Christ before Pilate. Pilate says, Jesus, I have the authority to kill you. And Jesus says, no, you don't. The only authority you have is the authority that the Father grants to you. So whatever you do, you do because God says you should. You don't have any authority. Of another incident, Pastor Yosef says this. During an earlier interrogation, I had an officer who threatened to kill me. Please listen carefully to these words. He said to him, Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching, and everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached, because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. I don't know if I'd have the courage to say that. And the interrogator looked at him and sent him home. Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, we know that Mr. Son would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. And then he says this, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. 
Now that I was willing to lose it, I had found it. Risk is right. And those that would risk for the sake of the gospel, we should esteem and hold in high honor. Because through and through, their character is proven. They are humble in spirit. They have a passion and a zeal for evangelism. They are proven in their faithfulness. They are selflessly devoted to Jesus Christ alone. They have a genuine concern for people. And they are like-minded in Christ because they uh, can say with Paul, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Their life is to show forth Jesus Christ. So, in conclusion, I just want to give you three points of application. Number one, think about people like this. Think about people like Timothy, like Epaphroditus. Hold these men in high honor. Read Christian biographies of men who have gone before you. Esteem people like this. Honor them. That's the second point. Don't just think about people like this, but examine yourself. Who is your greatest hero? Who do you esteem the most? Is it a movie star? A TV star? Is it a famous athlete? A successful businessman? And I plead with you to make godly people your heroes. And thirdly, imitate people like this. Think about people like this, esteem people like this, and then imitate people like this. Start living these things out. Where you excel, excel still more. Where you can say, okay, I have evangelistic passion, keep on going for it. But in those six qualities, what is most deficient in your life? Examine your heart and say, God, make me a man or a woman that could be held in high honor because I have put on the mind of Christ and I live for him and him alone. Father, we thank you for your amazing love for us. And even now as we depart from here, as we consider the words of this hymn, love so amazing, so divine, the love that you've given to us demands that we give away everything, that we risk everything, that we hold nothing in this life so tightly to ourselves that we would not be willing to part with it. You have given us the family name. You are our father and Jesus is our brother. So even if the whole realm of nature were mine, that would be such an offering, far too small. As we stare at gospel love, as we stare at amazing grace, may it motivate us to be like Timothy and Epaphroditus for the renown of your name among the nations. We pray. Amen. Let's just sing the last verse.